Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to, give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were, who were being saved. Acts 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of, of encouragement, sold a field he, he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. So what we did is we took two passages from chapter 2 and chapter 4. Now, if you're a little less acquainted with the text, this is probably one of the most exquisite descriptions of the adventure of faith. Christianity is a doing word. It's not a passive word. It's not a listening word. The Western church has drifted towards listenership as the premium occupation of the church, and it isn't. The whole idea that drives our faith is that we act upon the things that Jesus told us to do. And so this is a great unfolding, a great story that is told over and over and over again. Now, what I wanted to do tonight is just frame our conversation so that we're reminded. He's Augustus. Uh, a remarkable man, actually, who was highly responsible. I hope you're impressed. This is the first time I've used pictures on the screen. Me, I, I did that all by myself. Uh, I didn't even ask one of my kids to do it with me, for me. But he's August. Augustus created a new world order. And I'm a history grad, so forgive me for nerding out for just a moment. And uh, the thousand-year reign of the Roman Empire was extraordinary for many, many reasons. But uh, what he did was crafted a civilization which was built on a kind of pantheism, which means you can worship any God as long as you don't think your God is the God, which was a big problem for us. And uh, built this extraordinary story, handed it over, and he actually was Caesar's adopted son, the original Caesar who got assassinated. Uh, that Caesar did not have a child. And so he was adopted, took Caesar's names, and then set out continuing to grow the kingdom and the empire as he laid it out, moved it into being a, from a republic into an empire. And it's an incredible study of great interest that preoccupies us over the years. However, Edwin Gibbon in the 18th century, a historian, wrote down why this empire imploded. And whilst many put it down to the barbarians, the Germanic, Celtic uh, forces that came and sacked Rome. Interesting thing I found out when I was at Lisbon last, uh, a few months ago, Lisbon is the only city in Europe, 
or the longest occupied city in Europe. Even Rome had 40 years after the sacking of the Visigoths that where no one lived there. So that's a piece of useless information. But they shaped us. Latin, the law, roads, infrastructure, a global economy uh, were all part of the unfolding of these great administrators. However, every civilization has its demise. And Edwin Gibbon in the 18th century said the demise of the Roman Empire was, next slide, here it is. He said, first, a mounting love, the reasons why the Roman Empire collapsed, I want you to listen carefully if you don't mind, a mounting love of show and luxury or affluence. I want us to ask whether any of these are relevant to America today. Secondly, a widening gap between the very rich and the very poor. Third, an obsession with sex. Fourth, freakishness in the arts. Masquerading as originality and enthusiasms pretending to be creativity. These are the reasons Gibbon says the Roman Empire imploded. It's soundly, sounding sadly familiar. And fifthly, an increased desire to live off the state. The government owes it to me. We should have health care for everyone. I'm not making a moral judgment on it. I'm simply asking, is there any similarity here to the world we live in, in America, at this time in the 21st century? And that I get from the man who shaped me as a young believer, a man called Francis Schaeffer, theologian and philosopher. Now, if those things were true then, and it caused the demise of an empire, and if those things could be true, at least at some measure, of us in the world in which we live, what decay was arrested? Next slide, St. Augustine. So St. Augustine is a very interesting man. His book, The Confessions, has been, movies have been made on it, theologians, philosophers, uh, culture creators have studied his book. And simply, and, and, and it's, it's a much longer story, but, but a moment happened in his teenage years when uh, he was of some means and he went into a neighbor's garden and stole the neighbor's pear with a bunch of mates and half ate it and then threw it to the hogs, I quote, and he was somewhat startled as to why they did it. They didn't need it. They were not hungry. They had their own wealth, their own opulence. Why would he want to take someone else's pair? At the same time, he had a very lust-filled relationship with a woman, a mistress, whom he loved but never married, with whom he had a child. Put all of these things together, and Augustine got to a place, and he lived in Hippo, northern northern Africa, he got to a place of sweet surrender to Christ, looking to become a new human and living in a new community. Remember what I've just written or just read. That was a picture of the Roman Empire that he was living in at the time. And something inside of him did not satisfy. As much sex as he wanted didn't do it for him. The affluence he had didn't do it for him. A crazy freakish arts didn't do it for him. And so what he found himself doing was surrendering to Christ in what is arguably one of the most 
profound conversions, certainly of that era. I quote from an article, in the year 397, so this is the fourth, um, 400 years after Christ, Augustine wrote a rule of common life for lay Christians. In other words, people like us. Upon his return to Thagesta in North Africa after his baptism by Ambrose in Milan, so he went to the bishop, Ambrose, and he said, would you baptize me? Augustine founded a new community. He could not live with himself. He could not live in the society that he found himself in. The disconnectedness from what the society applauded and ultimately led to brokenness and what he was looking for that would ultimately lead to wholeness required a new creation and a new community. He formed a new community of laymen with whom he shared life and prayer. The essence of the rule, here it comes, is to value community life over seeking for oneself. Central to these principles is overcoming the human tendency to favour one's own ego. What Augustine saw as a major obstacle to achieving unity amongst members and living the Christian message, that ego, by their love for one another, by their ability to live together in harmony, the members of this religious community embodied the truth of the teachings of Christ and they make his love present to others. What happened to Augustine? Why was he from just your average young guy doing things young guys do in an unrestrained empire driven by all the lusts you can possibly imagine? What was so compelling for him? It was his desire to become a new creature and his desire to become, to live in a new kind of community. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 3 for just a moment. You can just put that slide up. There we go. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus was a man of great influence, a man of some wealth, we are told. Uh, a philosopher, a thinker, uh, one of the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem. He comes to Jesus at night. And he says, Jesus, listen, dude, you've got to tell me. Is this what, what they say about you? Is it really true? And so Jesus tickles his intellectual curiosities by saying in verse 3, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's a rabbinical approach of teaching. It's to create curiosity by putting us into an impossible description. It's not possible to go back into your mother's womb. Nicodemus understands that. But then to add fuel to the fire, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God, same verse, same idea, unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Augustine, flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Jump down to verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I'll weave these together to the best that I can in just a moment. Verse 16. Here it comes. What was Augustine longing for? A new creation. To do what? To live in a new community. He had community. He had best mates that he ran with. 
and did all sorts of stuff that he wrote about in his confessions. But that was not what he ultimately wanted. He wanted to be new and he wanted to live in a new community. For God so loved the world, Augustine, that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Augustine, you are looking for a transcendent reality. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Light, verse 19, has come into the world, but people loved darkness. What is Jesus doing here? Dare I suggest He is weaving together a number of ideas, a number of ideas to allow this highly spiritual intellectual to understand what redemption was. We hone in on one little phrase, you must be born again. But actually in Jesus' conversation with him, he uses this interplay of being born again, born of the Spirit, um, the wind of the Spirit blows where it wills. Who does not want to be free? And Jesus says, do you understand? The wind of the Spirit blows where it wills. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You wanna be free, Augustine? Become a new creation, become born again, become born of the Spirit or more familiar within our evangelical circles, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. It was an invitation, please hear me, to rebirth, born again. Now you say, Chris, why is all that important? I was sitting with a, a man last night, a pastor, and he was telling me his story, and he, he planted a church in Utah, and he said, Chris, you know, the amazing thing is it was something in the, the town, which I shall not name, was about 98% Mormons. Not only is there a doctrinal crisis, but it's a righteousness by works. I've got to do enough to impress Jesus so that I could get saved. And he said, I looked with disdain on these people going door to door, knocking on the doors, wanting to speak to him until I looked into the mirror and realized it was I, he said who was trying to impress God with my righteousness. Do you see how, how righteous I am, Lord? I'm going to a, a state where no one wants to plant a church. Do you see how righteous I am? Do you see how righteous I am? I go from door to door. Do you see just how righteous I am? And it was in the slow grind of failure that he had to face the fact he was actually trying to become righteous by his performance rather than a surrendered life to Christ. The invitation, and please hear me, we are not offering, Jesus is not offering a slightly improved self. There it is. Now please hear me. He's not saying to you, come to me, you know, come to church once or twice a month and, and sing a few songs and, you know, you sleep a little less with your girlfriend and you smoke a little less dope and you don't get drunk as much and Jesus is, ah, here's my boy. Is my boy. No, no, he's not offering a slightly improved self. He's not offering a better version of you. He's not offering for you to discover yourself or even to be true to yourself. That's a postmodern idea. He was offering to Augustine and to these people a new creation placed in a new community. That, dear friends, is the power of this gospel. And that's what these men and women saw. They were in the Rome, as I described. Everywhere around them was the extravagance of licentiousness. 
if time allowed, if you, if you listen to a man like Tom Holland, not the actor, the historian. Yeah, I know, go figure. Not Superman. Just testing you. I wanted to make sure you weren't asleep. Do you think I don't know that? <laughs> I didn't. Um, but but, but he, he was being invited. These people were being invited not to splash Rome with a little bit of holiness, but to enter into a world of complete rebirth. The joy, the wind blows where it wills. A spirit, a, a human who has come into this life of new creation is sensitive to the movement of the spirit. There is freedom, there is life, there is laughter, there is joy, there is tears, there is heartache, all wrapped into this new creation. So, the passage that Kai read, if you hold the two together, you will find six things appear every time. It's almost like this is the community's foundation. You wanna know what Christian community is like? You wanna be part of it? This, this is what it looked like. They wouldn't have known what we call church today. Buildings, and I'm not against buildings, but buildings that you attend once or twice a month subject to your wishes and wills as you discover yourself and want to be true to yourself. They wouldn't know any of that. Because I was watching a brief historical documentary, excuse me, nerding out, on Ignatius, Ignatius of Loyola. I can't remember which Caesar it was when Rome was at its largest and his primary concern in Rome was not the barbarians, it was the Christians. Because they preached a gospel of one God and his name is Jesus and you are to bow your knees. So what the Caesar decided to do was to find one of the most influential Christians of the day, Ignatius, brought him all the way from Africa to Rome, gave him an opportunity in front of the Colosseum to repent and he stood there and he said, I would that the lions would crush and grind my bones. I would that they would eat on my flesh. I would that they would devour me for then I shall be with my Saviour, the lover of my soul. And rather than having the effect of obeying crowd and there were some who did, it was the raw anointing of God where the gladiators fought and the lions moved. The lion, the, the big male lion came out and actually sat next to him as he was preaching. A starved male African lion lay next to him as he preached. And then, oh, that's what his Saviour did. It is finished. And the lion took him and ate him. But rather than having the effect that Caesar hoped, it led many people in the auditorium, in the Colosseum, bow their knee, not then, but Christianity was on the rise because this Christianity offered a new creation with a new community. Why would a man, in a moment, he could say, yes, 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 Caesar, you are God and everyone else is God and we'll just be woke, we'll just be politically correct and we'll live happily ever after. Let the lions grind my bones and eat my flesh. For then shall I be with the lover of my soul. A new creation, a new community. These six things, dear friends, they all occurred in both passages. Firstly, they prayed. 
It was such a beautiful first response, an instinct that no matter what happened, the church prayed together. In January, please note, we are going to have a 24-hour prayer here. All that we ask is that everyone sign up for one hour to come and pray here. I'm going to be here for as much of the day as I can. Everyone comes to pray for one hour. Why? So we can begin to develop our prayer muscles and let prayer be our going first instinct. Secondly, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, both passages. You know, the, being filled with, please hear me. I, I looked around the room and it was so beautiful. The candles were going, thank you for whoever set this up. The music was great. The worship, you girls did a great job, tie well led. And there were some of you who were just looking around the room. Probably saying something like, yeah, I'm quite dry. Can I tell you about a woman who had an issue of blood? She was not allowed to be in a room like this. She was not allowed to be around anybody by social etiquette and pro protocol. But she was prepared in her desperation to encounter Christ. She elbowed her way through the crowd, oh, that I might touch but the hem of his garment and he will heal me. The posture in times of challenge and heartache and, and, and a sense of soul famine is not to stand dismayed and disconnected. It's to elbow your way to the front and say, I'm standing right here tonight and Jesus, I want you to touch me no matter what price, no matter what cost. That is the hunger that gripped them. Ladies and gentlemen, if the prospect is keen, I, I, there was a, a, a black activist in South Africa, Joseph Corbel, who's a friend of mine, rested many times in the apartheid struggle. And I said to him, Joseph, what was it like? He said, I had a bag by the front door and every night I kissed my wife and my kids, there was the possibility that the security police would come and knock on the door. And he said, I lived with that because the cause was worth it. And ladies and gentlemen, we better have a soul suitcase at the front door when the enemy comes knocking. And I push my way through to the front. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit, even as I engage your people in worship. Remember, remember David, the king, warrior king, in Psalm 103. Forgive my passion tonight. It's just, this is so deeply stirring in me. I know what some of you are facing. I meet you over coffee. I know what the enemy is throwing at you as much as it is to the soul to destroy you as it was for Ignatius in a Colosseum to destroy his body. And it is as imperative to push your way to the front and say, as David said, praise the Lord, O my soul. Why did he have to tell his soul? Because his soul did not want to praise the Lord. He said, soul, now you listen to me, Psalm 103. Listen to me, soul. You praise the Lord. No, I don't want to. I'm a cool. I've had a dreadful week. I'm writing exams. My boss fired me, whatever, whatever. I am just stubborn because I'm discovering my true self. Can I be completely kind and say, to hell with your true self. Find Jesus. That's where your true self is, dear friends. Not some external other not going to the desert. I say that as a father with deep love and I know some of you are offended by it and I really don't mind. Because the only place I find myself is with Jesus. 
That's the only place I find myself where I am, as Chris, a son of the Most High. That's where myself really lives. In His presence is fullness of joy. That's where my true self lives. And David says to his soul, now soul, praise the Lord. I don't want to. Soul, praise the Lord and forget not all his benefits, soul. Remember the things that he has done for you, soul. Lift his holy name. They spoke the word of God boldly, thirdly. All believers were together with one heart and one mind, shoulder to shoulder. Shared everything they had. Question. Shared everything they have. If you have been given money or a car or a medical bill paid for by someone in the church, would you raise your hand? Okay, just keep them up. That's this. That's this. Doesn't mean we all have to do what, what um, Barnabas did. But what it does mean is that there were no needy amongst them. The rich were rich, the poor were poor. Joseph was rich. He had lands, he was a landowner. But others were poor. And he said, I got you. I got you covered. I'm going to sell some property, man, so that your needs can be met. This is a new creation creating a new community. Shared everything they had, great power with apostles. Three things quickly that is different in this passage and I'll try and be quick and work through them. The first is this beautiful, beautiful verse. Gee, I'm passionate to my, am I too passionate, my love? Okay. With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the dead. Paul said, if there was no resurrection of the dead, we above all men should be most pitied. Resurrection of the dead is the beginning of that new creation where Christ rose from the dead to become the firstborn of many. And we find our identity in that space. And here it comes. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Sorry, I'm losing my place here. Powerfully at work in all of them. You know... Grace is a mysteriously beautiful part of the very character of God. It's sublime. It's so undeserving. And the three words, three little phrases that has been so helpful to me over the years, and forgive me for rushing, but I do need to, is the notion that God offers me undeserved mercy. That pastor that I spoke to last night he spoke about the transformation that happened when he realized it was not on how many doors he knocked on and how gutsy and brave heart he was to plant a church in a Mormon community. But it's simply this. Jesus offered undeserved mercy. We don't clean ourselves and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus so that he can clean us. We don't deserve it. Meryl and I were driving today and uh, we were just kind of reflecting, even on all of you, and just how in awe we are of God's mercy towards us, that you would want to be part of a community here in Costa Mesa with all of our little uniquenesses and quirkinesses. This is undeserved mercy. There's no way. We were going to be school teachers in Durban and there's nothing wrong with that profession. We loved it. I actually loved being a high school 
teacher in the afternoons. I was coaching rugby and cricket and athletics. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it until God offered me grace. And he said, son, you don't deserve it, but I'm gonna give you the adventure of a lifetime. Would you put up your hands? I said, yes, sir, I will. He came to Merrill and said, Merrill, will you put up your hands? And with a greater reluctance because of her personality, she tentatively put up her hand and said, yes, sir. And we have lived for 40 years in the undeserved mercy of God. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus is an unmerited favor. He puts us in places, sorry, and meet people. And we do things we never imagined. We, please, please, can I, again, can I speak as a father? Control your life. The only problem is it'll be this big. This big. It'll be as big as you can control. But when your hand goes up for this undeserved mercy and unmerited favor, you enter into the realm of the transcendent. God will do with you things you never dreamed possible. Depths as dark as you could never imagine. Light as bright as you could never imagine. Because such is the journey of the kingdom. And grace is divine empowerment where we live a life that is not humanly possible. Meryl and I, as you know, have been married for 43 years. 43 years, yeah. And um, dating, we've been together for 46 years. Honestly, were it not for that divine empowerment, we would be divorced. That's not even speculative. That just is fact. Probably three or four times in our marriage, we had to look at each other and I don't even think we liked each other. We were uncertain whether we loved each other. And then the divine empowerment of God comes into our broken, hurting, injured hearts. And grace washes us like an anointing oil, perfume from the most high heaven. And we looked at each other and discovered actually this was not about a marriage we could manage control or regulate. This was not based on how much Chris could love Meryl or Meryl love Chris. This was an act of sovereign surrender. How much would we allow Jesus in? All right, moving on quickly. The second thing we see is not only grace, I'm watching the clock. Thank you for no one reminding me. <laughs> I love, I know, I love these truths, man. This, this I, you know, I haven't just come out of college seminary and pulling my notes out from Professor Dudab and here are all the nine points about, this is from years of walking with Jesus and seeing the fruit of this. We see a growing depth in generosity. You know, it's, the Bible says in Galatians that, uh, that, we, that Abraham is the father of our faith. Imagine with me for just a moment. A father who's waited for decades for his boy. I know, I waited until I was 40 for mine, who's in New York right now. And I know what it was like when I knelt on my knees and gave my boy as a baby back and I said, thank you, Jesus, for giving me a boy. Now I give him back to you. You can take him anytime you want. He's not mine to have. And I can only imagine what it was like for Abraham on that, uh, the, the, in, in that dastardly desert conditions when he started walking up the hill with his boy now to offer a sacrifice, which 
his boy knew was going to happen. And his boy was old enough to look around and say, hey, pops, where's the lamb? I, I know there's no offering here without a lamb. Did, did you forget, are you getting a little senile? Are you getting a little, you know, that you, you lose your keys all the time? Are, are you that guy? And I think Abraham looked with great tenderness on his boy and he said to him something that we hadn't heard and was never recorded up until this moment. My boy, Yahweh, Here, Jehovah Jireh is our English interpretation. My God will provide. And I think the boy must have looked and said, bro, you nuts. I mean, what's this God will provide? We're, on a, we're on a, in a desert, on a mountain. There aren't any anythings here. And are you telling me God will provide? And listen, folks, this is the moment as I prayed for us today. When Abraham took the knife into his hand to stab his son, did God need him to do that? Oh, absolutely not. Abraham needed to do that. That the ultimate test was that I can trust you, Lord. Even if I kill my boy, you will resurrect him or whatever. Generosity is born out of the realization that it is God who gives. It is, the, he is the source of all generosity. Our family mantra amongst many is you cannot outgive God. And I've watched God teach all three of my kids that. There was a moment where they could choose, are they going to give or not give? And I watched them obey Jesus and the outcome of this generosity that just began to well over them. Remember the sower and seeds. Isn't that sad? Now remember, these were Jews. So they didn't have to be taught about tithing. People say, well, where's tithing in the New Testament? This was written initially to Jews. This was about Jews. Jesus didn't have to say it. Paul didn't have to say, now remember to tithe. They knew about that. They had been doing that their whole lives. Isn't that sad? Look at that statistic. Less than a quarter of American Christians tithe. Have you not been up the mountain? Have you never held the knife in your hand to kill the very thing that is deepest and dearest to you, being prepared to do that, knowing that Yahweh, Jehovah, Jireh, He, my boy, is our provider as they find the little lamb in a thicket and they take him and they slaughter him and burn him. Or, and... The average American Christian gives about 2.5% of their income. I think that's less than coffees. It's less than tipping. You're right, Stu. We all tip about 15%. <laughs> that's weird, man. We don't even give God a tip. That's like so weird. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have heard that because now I'm stuck in that little narrative in my mind. Sorry, God, you know, your service wasn't good recently. I was thinking of giving nothing, but no, I'll give you two and a half percent because kind of that's what you're worth. Crazy, isn't it? They were Jews. They understood about tithing. It wasn't, it wasn't a debate for them. Paul doesn't write anywhere now about tithing. Some of you are complaining. I don't think it was a thing. It's just what they had known their whole lives, their offerings and almsgivings. There were no needy amongst them. I'm almost finished. One more. Grace 
generosity. Ask God tonight when you come here. For God who gave his son, gave his all, held nothing back. This isn't about, and you know we've been going six and a half years and we've never taken an offering. Do you know that? When we started, I felt God say to me, don't fundraise and don't take an offering. And we haven't to date. It doesn't mean we never will, we just haven't. Now it does mean we have no full-time staff, which is another conversation. But folks, when the generosity of God grabs my heart, Yahweh, here I When I put Dana through Biola, I said, Jesus, I believe you can provide for me, for my daughter. And every time the bull came round, I would get onto my knees and say, Yahweh, here I need this amount. And I thought, well, phew, thank goodness that happened as we paid the last amount. And Dana said, how did you do that, Dad? I said, I have no idea. I'm a pastor and a pastor's salary. Then Meryl decides she wants to go to grad school. Here we go again. Yahweh, here You're my great provision. Put Meryl through grad school. Not me. I mean, I can't do the maths. Even if I wanted to, Sam, I can't even do a spreadsheet. That's probably why. I just, all right, God, we need this amount. And then I put T through Point Loma. We did. Last semester, last amount, a check came in the mail. $7,000 for Tion's education for someone we kind of know. How did he know? How did he know? Yahweh Hire told him. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. This isn't cracking a whip about our giving. This is an invitation to discovery. God, the Almighty God, who is my great source and my great generosity. Here is the seed I sow. Here is the gift I give. Now you do with that whatever you want. Lastly, very quickly. Verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Very quickly. Very quickly. He was a Jew. So he understood these things that we are talking about better than us. He was a Levite, so not only was he by nationality a Jew, but by tribe, he was a Levite. But this is the part that was interesting, dear friends. He was from Cyprus. This is Jerusalem. He was from Cyprus. We're all from, from somewhere, aren't we? How many of you are Costa Mesa born and raised? Thank you, Ben. I see that hand. One person in a room of 10,000. Well, a little bit less. Like a thousand, like, okay, 127. Um, one person. We're all from somewhere. And that tells me we're all lonely. Except Ben. <laughs> that tells me we're all a little disorientated. I am. I'm a South African. I don't fit in. Till I go back to South Africa and they say, oh, you sound so American. And I'm like, well, who am I? I'm a Jew, a Levite from Cyprus. I don't fit in here. And when I go back to South Africa, I don't fit in there. Because the journey, folks, is an invitation to become part of a holy nation, a new creation, and a new community. But boy, is it painful. I could keep you busy 
to tell you my stories of loneliness as you tell me yours. Of being at college and I came to faith and all my rugby playing, drinking mates, I was the only one who got saved. And I remember going down on a Friday night, everyone preached on the streets and then we went to a coffee bar together and I went to preach on the streets and I thought, I have no idea what this is. Why would you stand on a street corner and preach? Then we go back to a coffee bar. I'm used to a good few beers. It's Friday night. That's what we do. And I thought, I can't do this. This is too lonely. I can't do all that stuff anymore. And I drove up to the hill to my varsity mates and they were drinking. And I sat there and the Spirit of God said to me, you don't belong here, son. I said, I don't, but where am I supposed to go? I'm from Cyprus. I don't belong. Not by nationhood. Not by tribe, not by city. Welcome to being a new creation in a new community. The gospel impacted this landowner. Isn't it amazing? Up until now, the story's been about apostles. Not now. God says, show me a businessman. Hey, Joseph, called Barnabas, come here. I want to write about you. Because this is a hinge moment. It's all about everything the apostles have done and suddenly it's, oh, oh, okay. This is about a, a landowner. This is about a businessman. And this is what this businessman does. The gospel so impacted him as it impacted Augustine as he wrote his confessions and his struggles and his wrestles, walking away from his mistress that he loved all of his life to a businessman landowner who said, Jesus, I'm a new creation and I'm in a new community and it costs me everything. Here's my land. Not by law or obligation, but by the revelation. Yahweh, here I. You know what's amazing about this, folks? Barnabas didn't know that he would travel the world with Paul and preach the gospel. Barnabas didn't know that he was going to open up cities, Antioch, as an example, with Paul for the gospel. He didn't know that. He was a businessman. But the gospel so dramatically impacted him that he said, this is what I have. Dana read it, silver and gold I do not have. He had silver and gold. He said, here it is, this is what I got. God said, thank you. If you're faithful with a little, God will entrust you with much. You had a piece of land, thank you, Joseph. But I'll tell you what I'll give. I'll give you the nations. Antioch and others. You will preach the gospel. You will see people come to faith. You will see life transformed and you will see new creation creating new communities. This is an exceptional story. We're all from somewhere. We're all wrestling with our identity. We're all wrestling with our loneliness and where we belong and where we fit in. Welcome to this world. But we serve Him. Yahweh, Hirai, Jehovah Jireh.